Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tech, episode number 52 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. The great highway running northwards along the western shore of San Francisco takes a sharp and steep turn inland at Land's End. There's a greasy spoon restaurant along the outer edge of that curve where I take myself to breakfast once in a while. Not because the food's anything special, but because Louie's features one of the great views to be had in San Francisco, especially when you've managed to grab that great booth over in the corner. It's impossible for me to gaze through the picture windows without contemplating the story of one of the most interesting characters in our collective history, Mr. Adolf Joseph Heinrich Sutro. Just to the south of Louis stands Adolf Sutro's world-famous cliff house, twice destroyed and rebuilt and now under renovation for the umpteenth time. To the north, adjacent to the water at the bottom of a steep and winding trail, half-choked with orange and yellow nasturtiums, lie what seems strangely like the ruins of some ancient civilization, large abandoned seaside pools comprising the remnants of the Sutro Baths. His name actually marks a number of local icons in the city. The forest, a mountain, a strange spiky broadcasting tower, for example. But though these fragments of physical inheritance are still with us, the magnitude of his importance to the city is inadequately remembered. You could say that Adolf Sutro arrived in San Francisco twice. First in 1851 as a young immigrant with nothing to his name but youth and energy and then again almost 20 years later as a magnanimous populist multi-millionaire. Sutra was born in Aachen, Prussia in 1830. Aachen is now part of modern Germany, famous through its role as the imperial city of Charlemagne in the 9th century. Sutra's story is not quite imperial, he never conquered the Saxons for example, but impressive nonetheless. As a child, he was a lover of books and fascinated by all things scientific and mechanical, benefiting educationally from the prosperity enjoyed by his German-Jewish parents. Sutro spent hours studying the stars through his small telescope or mixing strange chemicals together, occasionally producing tremendous explosions, and dreamed of someday becoming a great scientist. Due to an injury to his father, he was compelled to give up this ambition to help run the family cloth factory. But these years of rubbing shoulders with common workers provided him with an education in labor that the academies never could have given him. His father died, leaving Sutro and his brother in charge of the increasingly successful factory. But then came the rumblings of the anti-monarchist German Revolution of 1848, then it was decided that the entire family should emigrate to the New World. Mother Sutro and her 11 children arrived in New York in 1850, and if you've listened to enough of these San Francisco stories, you probably have some idea of what's coming next. The East Coast was in the grip of gold fever, and young Adolf determined to separate from the family and seek his fortune, as one biography puts it, on the far-fabled shores of the Pacific. He arrived almost literally penniless, and rather than following the hordes of his fellow Argonauts up into the hills, he decided to throw all of his energy into small-time waterfront trade, buying, selling, and keeping cigars and fine tobacco. He carved out a small and frugal life for himself, marrying and producing six children in the first nine years of his San Francisco stay. But then, in 1859, news of the discovery of gold and silver in Nevada, the fabulous Comstock Lode, electrified the West Coast. 
We've learned a little bit about this in previous SparkleTech episodes about William Ralston and Mark Twain, for example, but the Comstock mines provided a crucial spark to Adolf Sutro's career. I'm guessing that he was a little bored with domestic life and the routine of retail trade. We know that he undertook an expedition to Virginia City to see the source of the excitement for himself. He'd kept up his studies of the latest advancements in science through books and periodicals, then went to work with a German chemist to develop a method of chemically extracting extra gold and silver from already processed Comstock ore. A processing mill established on this principle made him a wealthy man, but it didn't prevent him from being deeply struck by two facts about the mines themselves. First, these mines were incredibly dangerous to the men working them because of the literally hellish environment of blisteringly hot water and foul, deadly gases, not to mention the constant threats of mudslides and cave-ins. Second, an application of scientific principles could both alleviate the men's condition and provide a lucrative business opportunity. Sutro busied himself with developing a novel plan of grand scale, namely, that of blasting a tunnel four miles long through solid rock to ventilate the toxic gas and drain the water. Sutro presented himself in William Ralston's Bank of California office one day and laid out the entirely researched and fully developed plan. Though Ralston knew of him by reputation, this was the first time he'd actually laid eyes on our hero, who historian George Lyman describes as tall, dark-haired, massive physically, with the look of a dreamer and the burning eyes of a seer. Though Sutro had no history as a mining engineer, and this tunnel was to be the biggest engineering job in the history of the country, Ralston was a gambler, then wrote a letter of introduction for Sutro to take back east to raise a little money. Sutro steamed eastward, but was told by all the banks that he'd need money from the California side before they would invest. Ralston and his powerful cartel had begun to see Sutro as a potential rival, however, and froze him out. He became an invisible person in Virginia City, reporting later that old friends crossed the streets rather than shake his hand. He believed in his idea, though, and wouldn't quit, launching a single-handed fundraising campaign determined to get his tunnel, then known as Sutro's Folly, finally built. A disastrous fire in one of the mines provided a turning point. Poisonous vapors in the Yellow Jacket mine finally exploded, igniting a blaze which trapped miners underneath the ground for weeks. Then when the horrendous blaze finally burned itself out, nearly 50 bodies were pulled from the depths, with dozens maimed and ruined. There was no question in the minds of the rest of the community of labor that Ralston and his greedy consortium had sacrificed their companions for the sake of profit. Sutro had posters printed and called an assembly of the miners at McGuire's Opera House. He gave a powerful, furious speech, beginning a career as an anti-monopolist on the spot as he called on the workers to make powerless your oppressors and break up your arch enemy, the California Bank. The miners reached deep into their grimy pockets and came up with $50,000 for the tunnel, which induced European sources to chip in ground was at long last broken in 1869. Though this may make dot-com survivors tremble to hear, Sutro was one of the very first to offer employees stock options as partial compensation. He was seen as such a friend of labor that, though the going rate was four dollars, 
his workers accepted a rate of $3 per day, with an additional dollar paid in Sutro Tunnel stock. It had taken so long for construction to begin, and believe me, I've left out years of political intrigue, that by the time it was complete, the Comstock load was already playing out. It did make a little money and certainly saved lives, but though it never paid off as Sutro had thought it would, the sale of all of his private shares upon its completion in 1879 filled his pockets with over $20 million in modern currency. Then he returned to San Francisco as the king of the Comstock. There was an economic depression underway in the city, and you'll undoubtedly recall that this was the period of rabble-rousing labor leader Dennis Kearney's rise to power. But as Sutro would later recall, I took my money and invested in real estate when everyone was scared and thought the city was going to the dogs. He went on a real estate spending spree, eventually becoming the owner of one-twelfth of San Francisco's buildable land. The single biggest chunk was his acquisition of the 1,200-acre Rancho San Miguel west of Twin Peaks, a remnant of Jose Noe's undeveloped land grant from 1845, but Sutro's holdings eventually occupied the vast majority of what are today the Richmond and Sunset districts, thousands of acres including much of Twin Peaks and Mount Davidson. A buggy ride out to Land's End in 1881 inspired him to purchase a small but graceful cottage on a bluff overlooking the ocean and to develop this land into a magnificent estate known as Sutro Heights. He poured his heart and his wallet into this estate, converting the cottage into a comfortable retreat complete with observatory tower and the grounds into a luxuriously over-the-top garden paradise, complete with a dense tangle of faux classical statuary, gazebos, terraces, and acres of beautifully embroidered beds of exotic flowers. Perhaps there was an echo of Charlemagne's sacked palace back in his boyhood home of Aachen there, but at the same time, Sutro's essential populism was not to be repressed. He was, after all, a man who, during the Panic of 1893, when banks were closing and thousands had been thrown out of work, purchased 10,000 bed and meal tickets from the Salvation Army and handed them out to his fellow citizens. He turned the estate into a public park, inviting the entire population of San Francisco to enjoy his extravagant front yard, welcoming the poor and the rich alike. Notables such as President Benjamin Harrison and playwright Oscar Wilde were included among his guests. There's a terrific map of the Sutro Heights estate, among many other treasures, available at OutsideLands.org, a wonderful website focusing on San Francisco's western neighborhoods. I'll put up a link at sparkletack.com. The mass of property that he had accumulated on the western side of the city was essentially a single expanse of wind-scoured sand dune, completely undeveloped, and most people thought him a prize fool for making such a worthless investment. As we know all too well today, though, the city would eventually creep west, making him richer with every plot that he eventually sold off. But Sutro wasn't picturing houses filling up those barren mountainsides. In fact, he organized California's first Arbor Day in 1886, arranging for the planting of thousands of trees on Mount Sutro, then called Mount Parnassus, by armies of schoolchildren and the city's unemployed. 
The people of the Pacific coast will wander through the majestic groves rising from the trees we are now planting, reverencing the memory of those whose foresight clothed the earth with emerald robes and made nature beautiful to look upon. Those trees became what is today known as Sutro Forest, the remnants of which cover the slopes behind the University of California. To the horror of modern conservationists, though, it's comprised mostly of blue gum eucalyptus, a controversial species which chokes out native plants. Be that as it may, what we see up there today is only a fraction of the vast forest land Sutro planted over the next 20 years. It completely covered Mount Davidson, then called Blue Mountain, today's Forest Hill and St. Francis Wood neighborhoods, and even reached as far south as Westwood Park along Ocean Avenue. Back at the estate, Sutro acquired a disreputable establishment just below at the end of the Great Highway, a place built in 1863 and described by historian J. Kingston Pierce as a seedy hangout for drunks, political bosses, and prostitutes, then began to convert it into what would be characterized today as a destination restaurant and resort. This was the beginning of the ongoing evolution of San Francisco's famed Cliff House. Sutro immediately doubled it in size and then was given an unexpected opportunity to make even more changes when a schooner full of gunpowder grounded on seal rock and exploded, wiping a whole wing off the cliff. Seven years later, Christmas Day of 1894, that original building burned to the ground. Sutro replaced it with a Bavarian fantasy castle, that turreted, inspired wedding cake of a structure which is featured on so many black and white postcards to this day. Known by locals as the Gingerbread Palace, it stood seven stories tall with spires and an observation tower 200 feet above sea level. There was a large dining room, a reception room, numerous private dining and lunch rooms, a variety of art galleries, and, naturally, fabulous panoramic views from its large windows and veranda. This was the most beloved of all the Cliff House's incarnations, and its popularity really took off. It became the high-toned locale of choice for the average San Franciscan to meet for a romantic rendezvous, the hottest spot in town to dine, drink, dance, and hold hands at the windows, gazing out at the moon-dappled sea, and at the sea lions dozing out on Seal Rock. Incidentally, Sutro successfully lobbied Congress that year to guarantee the protection of his furry little friends out there on the rock. The sea lions have since moved on to Fisherman's Wharf, where the handouts apparently flow a little more freely, but those protections are still in place. To jump briefly ahead of our story, the Gingerbread Palace survived the 1906 earthquake, only to burn to the ground the following year. The current version was built by Sutro's granddaughter, Emma, in a neoclassical style in 1909 and has been remodeled many times since. The National Park Service acquired it in 1977 and is currently working on returning it to Emma Sutro's original design. Sutro was continually working on the Land's End estate, adding a variety of attractions to provide entertainment and diversions for San Francisco's public. In the same year that the Gingerbread Palace version of the Cliff House opened, he began work on his most ambitious project since the drilling of the Comstock Tunnel the now-vanished Sutro Baths. He was a fanatical devotee of the healthful effects of swimming and bathing, carting a collapsible bathtub all around the world so as never to be caught without means for a soak, 
and determined to offer a public space in which the good people of San Francisco could share this passion. After four separate attempts to protect the Oceanside site from battering by the waves, the first three of which fell into the Pacific, he was successful, and the result was nothing less than spectacular. In his own words, I must have it large, pretentious, in keeping with the environment, with the heights, with the great ocean itself. In what was becoming typical Sutro style, an opulent Greek portal opened into a massive triple-peaked glass-windowed natatorium containing six individual saltwater swimming pools, and one freshwater, of various temperatures. The tunnel that you can still see out there, the one carved through the rocks to the north, provided for filling and draining of the pools, 1.7 million gallons worth by the tides. The abundance of windows, over 100,000 individual panes, many of richly hued stained glass, created a greenhouse effect, warming the normally chilly coastal climate and allowing an abundance of plants to flourish. Up to 25,000 people could be accommodated throughout a typical day, and 40,000 towels were available for rent. There were slides, trapezes, springboards, trampolines, and a high dive, too. Take a look at the links up on sparkletech.com. But this million-dollar dream project of Sutra's went much farther than that. Sutra was an avid traveler as well as collector and had spent some of his millions on voyages to Mexico, Asia, and the Middle East. A museum was built into the baths to show off his various treasures. These included galleries of sculptures and paintings, as well as all manner of assorted curiosities and artifacts from all around the world. When the famous Woodward's Gardens, the subject of a future SparkleTech episode, auctioned off its holdings in 1893, Sutro bought truckloads of stuffed beasts and birds, relics of the past, curios, bric-a-brac, etc., as well as the pipe organ, and brought all of it over to the baths. Where else on earth could one swim and gawk at an Egyptian mummy or a stuffed snake fighting a jaguar? And if that wasn't enough, three restaurants were on site, as well as an amphitheater for dramatic and musical entertainment. Up at the top of the cliff, he installed several carnival rides and attractions salvaged following the closing of San Francisco's 1894 Midwinter Fair. A hundred-foot Ferris wheel actually a Firth wheel, built in imitation of Mr. Ferris's Chicago World's Fair construction, was the featured attraction, along with the mystic maze and the haunted swing, which were joined by other attractions as the years went by. Originally known as the Sutro Pleasure Grounds, this area was eventually renamed Merry Way, a name which hardly seems fitting for the barren parking lot that lies in its place today. My favorite part of the story of this happy little Sutro empire out there on the western headlands can be traced back to the Comstock Tunnel battle with Ralston and the Monopolists. The Southern Pacific Railroad, representative of exactly the same kind of small business and competition-choking methods, came to control the trolley line out to Land's End. Collis P. Huntington, the president, promptly doubled the fare from five to ten cents. This was real money for a working stiff back in those uninflated days, and Sutra was furious at the imposition. He told Huntington that if the fare didn't go back down, why, he'd build his own line out to the sea. Huntington, typically, refused to negotiate, and Sutra was as good as his word. 
Not only did he build his own streetcar line out to the baths, but took his revenge by charging the folks who'd made the questionable decision to travel on the Southern Pacific Line 25 cents. Everyone else got in free. His railroad grade can still be traveled, but now by foot. It's a walking trail along the top of Land's End's cliffs. As one might imagine, the baths were terrifically popular at the turn of the century, but as the years ticked off towards the 1930s and the Great Depression, they began a slide into disuse and disrepair. Sutro's grandson was forced to convert the largest swim tank into an ice rink to try and make ends meet, and each generation tried a new trick to keep the baths financially afloat. Finally, in 1952, the inevitable happened, and the operation was shut down. The San Francisco News wrote that the decision would bring nostalgic regrets to thousands of San Franciscans. Eventually, a condo development was slated for the site, and it's reported that insurance-related arson took care of the remains of the decaying structure. Those condos were never built, thank goodness, and the National Park Service forestalled such a disaster from ever happening by buying the ruins in 1980. They're open to the public, but keep one eye on the ocean. The waves that caused Sutro so much trouble when he began the project have swept more than one visitor right out to sea. There are certainly still those of philanthropic bent here in the United States, the Bill Gates and the George Soroses and so on, but it's still difficult to imagine construction of something on this scale today strictly for the benefit of the public at large. Adolf Sutro was simply a man who had a genuine interest in the people at heart, and he developed a pattern of acquisition and sharing that would come to characterize all of his philanthropic gestures. In one example, he donated 27 acres of precious land at the city's center to the University of California, where the UCSF campus and the medical center stand to this day. In another, he was a fanatical reader and collector of books, acquiring rare volumes from literally all corners of the globe, hundreds of thousands of rare and irreplaceable volumes in a staggering variety of languages and subjects. It was called the finest library in America, and was certainly the largest private library anywhere, described by one contemporary source as containing the greatest wonders of the printing press known to the new world. And to what end? A site for a massive new library building was selected in Golden Gate Park, near the location of the new de Young Museum, in fact, for a library which was to be absolutely free to San Francisco's public. It was on the basis of his reputation as an avuncular friend to the average Joe that Sutro was drafted as the mayoral candidate for the politically weak Populist Party in 1894. In a foreshadowing of future San Francisco politics, he ran on an anti-big business platform with a terrific campaign slogan, The Octopus Must Be Destroyed! Readers of Frank Norris will recognize Octopus as linguistic shorthand for monopolies in general, but Sutro's nemesis, the Southern Pacific Railroad in particular, and the campaign rhetoric ran hot against their tight control over local businesses. To his own surprise, Sutro actually won the election, becoming San Francisco's 24th and first Jewish mayor. Unfortunately, his term was not a success. Not only was he not really a politician, either by experience or by inclination, but had no real political connections and was damned if he'd build any. 
He quickly became exasperated by public officials who wouldn't follow orders like good employees in a company and felt helpless in a public office that demanded checks and balances on power. He finished out his term with great relief, ready to go back to private life and carry on with his list of future projects, which included the building of Oceanside hotels, the completion of that library, and so forth. Sadly, though, within a year of leaving the mayor's office, this charming and gracious old man disappeared from the public eye, and it's thought by some today that he may have suffered from Alzheimer's disease. He died quietly in 1898. A Bay Guardian story written a few years back by Annalee Newitz tells the tale of his donation of a tremendous statue to the city in 1887. It was erected at roughly the intersection of 16th and Ashbury, on top of the hill known as Mount Olympus, back then completely empty and devoid of all construction. The program for the opening ceremonies read in part, The monument, with a square of ground 100 feet each way, is a gift of Adolf Sutro to the people and city of San Francisco. Time will spread the city to its base. Within a few decades, it will be the center of life and stir. Old men will sit to rest on its steps, and playful children climb to the summit. Generations will fade away, and still that monument will dally with the wind and scorn the sun. Yet, while a semblance of its shape remains, the name of Adolf Sutro will linger in the memory of man. Children shall ask, Who built this monument? And old men shall answer, Adolf Sutro, a pioneer of this fair land, a successful miner, a joyous free American sovereign, a lover of light and liberty, that for all time those who live at its feet may be like him, and love them too. Well, It didn't work out like that, at least not exactly. Over time, the statue was heavily vandalized and then removed by the city to make way for real estate development. Sutro's name does linger, attached to a couple of locations, but without context or explanation, what does it mean? That free library in the park? It hadn't been built by the time of his death, and the bulk of his priceless collection was destroyed by the fire of 1906. All the more tragic because of the fact that the new library was to have been fireproof. The will he left behind, leaving much of his land holdings in public trust, was challenged and finally broken in the courts by his heirs. The Great Depression finally erased what was left of the fortune that he'd passed down. Sutro Heights was finally dismantled by the Works Progress Administration in 1939. And the sad story of the baths you already know. So where is Sutro now? I mean, where is his story, his legacy? I'm not certain, but I suspect that the answer may be up to us. We're all storytellers to a certain extent, and Dadolf Sutro, like so many other lost, submerged, and buried tales of our city, depends on us for continued life. It almost seems as though we have a responsibility to pass these forgotten stories on, to tell and retell them as part of our shared culture. So, take aside a friend, a niece or a nephew, or just accost an unsuspecting tourist, and share a San Francisco story. Thanks go out this week to Paul Quigley for the track Snow Scene, made available by a Creative Commons license. The usual assortments of photos and links appear on the sparkletack.com website. 
I'm reachable via the comments page or by email at sparkletech at gmail.com for questions or show requests. Thanks for listening. Till next time.